Support for this broadcast of Two Rivers 30 Minutes comes in part from a grant from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. From TubeCityOnline.com, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a weekly series of interviews with people making news around the McKeesport area. Produced by Tube City Community Media Incorporated, a nonprofit corporation. I'm Jason Toger, the executive director. On this show, we talk one-on-one with elected officials, community leaders, and others who are trying to make a difference in the Monoc area. And we also take your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. If you go to uh, Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or your local independent bookstore, if you have one, uh, there are a few left in the Pittsburgh area. There are a lot of political books. And a lot of them are quite um, heavy and academic and turgid. Chaotic neutral is not one of them. Uh, Ed Bramilla has been a political science professor. He is now a writer, journalist, and podcaster. We nearly had him in Pittsburgh when he was relocating a few years ago. We'll ask him about that. He is the author of the long-running blog, uh, recently sunsetted, called Gin and Tacos. His podcast is called Mass for Shut-Ins. And the new book is called Chaotic Neutral, How the Democrats Lost Their Soul in the Center. Ed Bramilla joins us from the Research Triangle uh, area of North Carolina. Uh, uh, good morning, Ed. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, White Whale Bookstore uh, yes. is, is your big independent in Pittsburgh. I, I visited there when I was in the city. Uh, if they're still up and running, I'm not sure they have my book in stock. But uh, you mentioned local independence, yeah. and uh, I realize the pandemic hasn't been kind to a lot of local businesses. So I hope White Whale is still out there and doing great. They very much are. We were there a few weekends ago, and I am uh, fairly certain that they will have Chaotic Neutral. Tell us about the title first, because I think gamers (laughs) probably know what Chaotic Neutral is, but tell us why you called it Chaotic Neutral. (laughs) You know, to be perfectly honest, uh, like most nonfiction books, it went through about six titles, and uh, the publisher came up with Chaotic Neutral. And my one objection to it, um, it's a very punchy phrase, gets people's attention attention, but I know nothing about Dungeons and Dragons. So (laughs) my great fear was that I was going to have to do interviews where people would open and say, tell me what kind of Dungeons and Dragons fan you are. And well, I think, I think it's, I'm not a, I'm not a tabletop gamer either, but I think it is a, a matrix of, you know, people are either lawful or chaotic or they're good or they're evil. And, you know, it's, this is, the Democrats are neutral, they claim, but I believe it was Jim Hightower who often says there's nothing in the middle of the road but dead armadillos and yellow stripes. Why have the Democrats staked out this uh, position of, well, we're going to be the, the grown-up party. We're going to be the moderate party. We're going to be the, the, the sensible centrist party. And, wh- and why hasn't that served them well? Well, uh, you know, what I talk about in Chaotic Neutral, uh, a lot of the fault, I guess, lies at the feet of Bill Clinton. The Democratic Party underwent a great deal of change in the 1990s. Bill Clinton was electorally successful and winning is important. Let's let's not kid ourselves. And after years and years of struggling to, uh, you know, uh, run competitive candidates in presidential elections, Bill Clinton coming along and winning was like manna from heaven for a lot of people in the Democratic Party. And so 
his leadership uh, was able to convince the party to go in a new ideological direction. And the rock bottom argument, you know, in the 90s always defaulted to, well, he wins, right? He won in 1992. He won re-election, which is something a Democratic presidential candidate hadn't done in eons at that point. And so it was a very powerful argument. And unfortunately, the long-term consequences of some of the things Bill Clinton did in the 90s to achieve short-term success, winning elections, are lingering with us now we're, we're sort of paying uh the, the the you know the costs of a lot of the ideological moves to the right and to the center because bill clinton's real accomplishment was to tell them you know convince democrats look if we don't yield on some of these issues and admit that the republican party is basically correct about things like quote unquote welfare or crime or whatever uh, you know if we don't move to the right and and meet them in the center we are never going to be able to get back up top because there's this new kind of voter that's our new you know baseline demographic it's not the working class voter it's this new successful professional often suburban often white kind of voter that we need to target and if we move to the right on these issues that we perceive to be um, hurting us. You know, um, Democrats in the 90s were tired of getting beaten over the head about being soft on crime, soft on national defense, soft on welfare, and, you know, which was their catch-all term for anything that benefits people who are, you know, made, you know um, uh, poor or working class or whatever. If we don't start doing that, the Republicans are just going to, um, you know, take off, run away from us, and we'll never be able to catch them. So, they had to redefine what success meant in the 1990s. Um, and success would no longer mean sticking up for liberal priorities and getting them enacted into law. Success would be redefined as we're getting something done. We may be admitting that the Republicans are essentially right about welfare and crime, but um, we can reframe this by saying the Republicans are also crazy, which is always an easy argument to make because they, they generally speaking are. And we can, uh, you know, position ourselves as a necessary buffer on the Republican Party, right? So we, we admit that the Republicans basically have it right about welfare, but without me, Bill Clinton, you know, yeah. to tame down their wild excesses, they would just go way too far and slash everything. So um, that, that's kind of how uh, success came to be redefined as getting anything done and taking what the Republicans wanted and, you know, sanding off the roughest possible edges from it. And Ed Vermilla is our guest this morning. A reminder that opinions expressed are not those of the host or the stations. Uh, he's the author of the new book, Chaotic Neutral, How the Democrats Lost Their Soul in the Center. It's available from Bold Type Books. There's a, there's a lot I want to ask you about. Um, we only have a half an hour, but, you know, we're, we're the, the, the radio stations that we're on are in McKeesport, and Braddock, Pennsylvania, and Wheeling, West Virginia, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, and these are communities that in the late 80s, early 90s, they fell out of the deindustrialization tree, and they hit every branch on the way down. So the, 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 the Clinton administration came along pushing free trade policies that, that encouraged offshoring, quite frankly, that encouraged investment overseas, and, and talked a lot about worker retraining programs. We were going to retrain, you know, the, the, the laid-off steel workers of, of Pittsburgh and the laid-off coal miners of Wheeling were going to become nurses and computer scientists and, and uh, w you know, whatever else. Yeah. 
um, Bill Clinton did what George H.W. Bush could not do, which was get Congress to, uh, you know, uh, uh, vote for NAFTA. Um, George H.W. Bush attempted to using fast track legislation uh, at the end of his presidency, and he actually couldn't get it through. Bill Clinton was the one who managed to convince enough people in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, which was already pro-free trade, to do it. But uh, the, the, the 1990s were a period where all of the promises of neoliberalism, um, because they were still in the promise phase, um, managed to hold a lot of people's attention. So in 1992, when Bill Clinton would, uh, you know, do a campaign stop at a uh, Rust Belt area factory and say, look, these jobs are going away, but they're going to be replaced by much better ones. Sure, a lot of people um, heard that at the time and might have rolled their eyes and said, yeah, yeah, likely story. But it also sounded plausible and promising to enough people. We believe in this country and the power of things like education, you know, to help people move up the ladder of the meritocracy or whatever. And to, you know, to tell people, look, um, you know, a, a way of life that you're familiar with and some of the things you know are, are fading away, um, this new inevitable reality of global globalization is coming. Nobody can stop it. All we can do is roll with its punches. So the, you know, the idea that globalization was going to change things, but they could conceivably change for the better sounded plausible, especially when it comes from someone like Bill Clinton, who's a masterful communicator, right? And then we ended up with 10, 15 years down the line through the George W. Bush presidency, the Great Recession of 2008, Barack Obama coming along and offering some sort of hopeful message. You know, uh, people have lost faith that the core argument of, look, the economy is changing, but we're going to educate and train you in a way that's going to allow you to come out on top of these changes. People simply don't believe the promise of it anymore. And the, the, the core message that, hey, your factory job, your, your mining job, whatever the case is, is going to go away, but you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be doing better, easier, yeah. higher paid brain work in the future has mostly given way to a reality of, well, some people have done extremely well out of this. And for the rest of people, there's the menial service industry job that is very hard for somebody to make ends meet with. Yeah. You know, um, so the idea that we're going to replace all of these factory uh, jobs with, you know, um, high, high brain power desk jobs is, is kind of morphed into a reality. Well, we've replaced these with retail jobs and um, gig economy kinds of things that people are just struggling with. So the the promise was plausible at the beginning um, to, to some people. And over time, it's become less and less plausible. Let's pause right there and take a 30 second break. Ed Bramilla is our guest this morning. He's a political scientist. He currently lives in the Research Triangle area of North Carolina. His new book is called Chaotic Neutral, How the Democrats Lost Their Soul in the Center. It's newly released from Bold Type Books. Um, when we come back, I want to ask you about the phenomenon of uh, Fettermania. Uh, a lot of our listeners in Braddock and McKeesport are obviously familiar with uh, John Fetterman, the mayor of Braddock, who is running for U.S. Senate. Uh, you had a column that you, uh, you had on Patreon here a week or two ago. Uh, I want to talk to you about... Uh, Outstanding. Broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes. We'll be right back. Support for this broadcast comes from Striffler's Family Funeral Homes. Since 1866, Striffler's has provided compassionate professional memorial services for families in White Oak, McKeesport, Dravosburg, Portview, and the surrounding areas. Striffler's offers comprehensive pre-planning services and aftercare. And through its affiliated company, Design Monuments, Striffler's also provides permanent markers and 
hand memorials crafted in stone, bronze, and other high-quality materials. Learn more at strifflers.com or call 412-678-6191. You wrote uh, a week or two ago on Patreon about a phenomenon you're calling Fettermania. And um, John <laughs> Fetterman has been no stranger to, to folks in the Mon Valley area. He's, he's been a, a very colorful and sometimes controversial figure as mayor of Braddock and now as lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. Um, familiar figure on the national stage going back at least 10 or 12 years, was featured in a Levi's commercials, uh, was a frequent guest on the Colbert Report, um, punchline on The Daily Show, all, all kinds of uh, national publicity. Now, of course, running for U.S. Senate against uh, Mehmet Oz. Um, what is Fettermania? Why, why has he connected in a way that you, you, you wrote about Connor Lamb, for instance, who opposed him in the Democratic mm-hmm. primary? Connor Lamb did not. What, 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 what lessons from your book, Chaotic Neutral, uh, do we see playing out in the in the Connor Lamb, uh, John Fetterman dynamic? Well, I think you know you, you see a guy like Connor Lamb, and he's obviously a successful politician in his own right. He's gotten elected in a district where it's not at all easy for a Democratic candidate to get elected to Congress. But the contrast between him and Fetterman in their primary competition against each other, I think, was pretty clear. Um, Fetterman's uh, done two things that I talk about in Chaotic Neutral that I think are really essential uh, for Democratic candidates to do. One of them is that he has made it clear that he wants to be pulling the rope in the same direction as everybody else, right? He is going to, everybody else in the Democratic Party in the Senate and in D.C. is pushing in one way. He's going to get behind them and push in the same direction, right? And I think a lot of Democratic primary voters responded very positively, not to him wearing athletic shorts or being a cool guy or whatever, but more to his very simple message of being the 51st vote. People are starting to recognize that when you do get a rare opportunity to govern, as the Democrats have, uh, you know, since 2020 in D.C., um, you need to make sure that you maximize that opportunity. And the idea of hearing excuses like, well, we would have done this except for Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema," um, I think too many people could too easily visualize Manchin and Cinema turning into Manchin and Cinema and Connor Lamb. You know, uh-huh. he, he simply had that commitment to this moderation of democratic policy, um, where, where he was going to see it as his role to slow everything down, to take everything that the rest of the party was, was trying to pass and saying, no, no, let's only do 70% of that or whatever. Whereas Fetterman is basically promising to be Dick Durbin in athletic shorts. You know, <laughs> he, he will show up and cast the vote for whatever the rest of the party and his president and everybody's pushing for. He's not going to be the reason things fail. And that's a killer message. And I think that the more Democratic candidates can do things like that, the more successful they're going to be. Right? I am going to help things get done. I'm not going to be another a part of the, the problem and somebody who's part of the excuses for why things didn't get done. Does it help, though, that he doesn't look like a convict? Connor Lamb looks like, you know, if you went to, you know, tr- Donald Trump's favorite phrase, central casting. I went to central casting. <laughs> if you went to central casting and cast a congressman or a senator, they might send someone who looks like Connor Lamb, right? He's a you know, sharp-looking guy, dresses sharp, nice, you know, tight haircut. Um, John Fetterman, as you mentioned, you know, the cargo shorts, the hoodies, which Mehmet Oz is recently making fun of, of him for. Yeah. Um, the beard, the tattoos, he's a big guy. Uh, th- does it help that he stands out from that crowd of the sort of centrist, plain-looking politicians? 
I'm sure it does. Um, there's no doubt that John Fetterman's uh, sort of persona, um, whether that's who he actually is or if it's a character he's playing for his day job, um, one way or the other, it, it does appear to be appealing to some people. And there's nothing, you know, but but the solution is not for the Democratic Party to go run out and find a million dudes. Tattooed who look like guys. They, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Bunch of tattooed guys who look like they're Pantera fans from yeah. the late 90s. <laughs> you know, that's not the answer. The answer isn't the optics. I think um, what we should look at with Fetterman, yeah, he seems like an appealing person. Does he seem like a fun guy to hang around? Sure. You know, would I like to go have a beer with him? Of course. That can uh, the, be arranged. The, the, real, <laughs> the real problem here, uh, or, or the real thing we should be taking away from it, you know, let's not look at the superficial things. Let's look at what he and his campaign are doing, right? And one of those things is he's just consistently promising to help pass things, right? He's consistently promising. I am not going to get in the way of the rest of the Democratic Party trying to do stuff. And the second thing he's doing that I, that I talk about in Chaotic Neutral, which I think is brilliant, is he's treating his Republican opponent with the exact amount of respect he is earning, right? Um, if there is a future in which the Republican Party puts up candidates whose ideology and personal approach to politics and everything is worthy of respect, then yes, by all means, treat them respectfully. Um, Oz's campaign has essentially been a disaster. He's kind of a joke candidate. Um, you know, he's bordering on, on, that on surprises, campaigning. That surprises me a little bit because, I mean, he, you know, we, we all know him from his own TV show, from Oprah, from his frequent appearances on the different morning talk shows. Um, he, he's Extremely well spoken, extremely smart, uh, extremely accomplished, uh, was a media celebrity. And I think a lot of people thought this might be a walkover for him, that, mm -hmm. that, that Dr. Oz was going to come in with this media savvy that he has and just – uh, roll over everybody. And that has not been the case. Are you surprised at all? I am. Um, but at the same time, I think his um, fame and his media profile comes from a certain kind of hucksterism that <laughs> um, perhaps I think we're starting to see the flaws um, in his approach and his worldview, um, which is, you know, if I'm correct me, if I'm wrong, he's originally somebody who rose through the Oprah empire, yeah, yeah. If, if that's correct. You know, that is not a media universe that has turned out a lot of people whose public profile has turned out to be, you know, we get Dr. Good. Phil, yeah. and Dr. Oz and things yeah. like that. Not maybe people that we want running the country, even if we find them entertaining. But, the, you know, the crucial mistake here was they left such an opening for the Fetterman campaign or if it had been the Lamb campaign or any other Democratic contender. Same thing. Um, the carpet bagging charge, um, you know, we, we are it's one of the oldest criticisms that candidates level at each other in politics. You're not actually actually from this state. You are somebody who has swooped in yeah. an opportunist. Um, some of these charges were leveled against Hillary Clinton yeah. when she ran for the Senate in New York, and it was and the only traction her opponent got against her. It was just a, we've seen that the Republican primary electorate around the country in 2022 has shot itself in the foot. We don't know what's going to happen in November. Fetterman may lose. Yeah. Um, Herschel Walker may be a senator yeah. from Georgia or whatever, but they are taking their competitive races, Pennsylvania and Georgia in particular, and instead of nominating some Glenn Youngkin clone, you know, uh, the, the governor of Virginia, a generic looking business guy who stands there and smiles and wears a fleece and says, yep, vote for me, I'm safe. And instead, they've nominated these candidates who are just kind of embarrassing the, the party. And, and if anything, just like daring people not 
to vote for them. Um, uh, it, you know, it, it, they've, they've fundamentally misplayed what should be a very competitive race. And I hope that the Fetterman campaign continues to take advantage of that. And what we're seeing in the polls is not just, uh, you know, wishful thinking. Let, let me ask you, we have another break coming up. The time goes quickly. But let me ask you for our listeners over on 88.1 in the Wheeling, West Virginia area, who may be in Ohio and they're watching the Tim Ryan, J.D. Vance Senate race. Is, is Tim Ryan adopting any of these same kind of strategies? I mean, he, he released an ad uh, a week or two ago where he's throwing footballs at at televisions with uh, J.D. Vance's picture on them, for instance. You know, Tim Ryan strikes me as somebody who is way too nice to actually pull off a lot of what what uh, the, the same kind of affect uh, yeah, that Fetterman, Fetterman has toward his opponent. But I do think that that's another Senate race where you know, had the the Republican Party nominated somebody they could portray as normal, um, <laughs> that they might be, uh, you know, you know, um, doing a little bit better. But Tim Ryan's campaign, I, I, you know, they're not asking me what I think. I would uh-huh. encourage them to continue to hit J.D. Vance as somebody who is himself kind of a carpetbagger, is somebody who uh, has embraced alarming right wing politics, not anything that's remotely portrayable as being mainstream. And he's just not a very likable candidate. You know, he's one of these people who rose on a wave of, of dark money uh, to, to the Republican nomination. And he is a candidate that, you know, he should be treated with the amount of respect that he's earning, which is, you know, not much. Let me let's take our break right there. We come back. We're going to get personal and we're going to ask, who is this Ed Bermilla and, and why are we reading his book and why are we listening to his podcast? Chaotic All Neutral right. is the book, How the Democrats Lost Their Soul in the Center. It's available from Bold Type Books, wherever books are sold, as they say. Um, Ed is also the host of the Mass for Shut-Ins podcast and a longtime author of a blog which has recently been retired called Gin and Tacos. He is a political scientist and he's joining us from his home in the North Carolina Research Triangle. Broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes. We'll be back in 30 seconds to wrap things up. You're listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a production of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. If you've got an idea for someone who you'd like us to interview or a question or comment, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the program, um, this is not an academic book. And read some of the chapter titles. The unshakable, if vague, feeling that something is wrong. The senseless habits of highly defective people. And if you're waiting for a sign, this is it. And the footnotes in the book are as entertaining and as informative <laughs> as the book is. Um, you've, you've gotten some good reviews uh, from Kirkus and from Publishers Weekly. Uh, are, you, are you worried that this is not boring enough to be taken seriously? Uh, you know what? I don't think too much about being taken seriously. I consider myself <laughs> a, a storyteller okay. okay. first and foremost. Uh, I want people to be entertained while they're reading this. I want people to not want to put it down. And I understand that there are other commentators in the world who have written books that are, uh, you know, uh, to be taken more seriously. Seriously than this, you pick up a 1,500-page Rick Perlstein book mm-hmm. like Nixon Land or Reagan Land, and you certainly um, can can read throughout that this, the the depth of the research and the seriousness on it. I want people to read this and get to the end and feel like they read a good book that they enjoyed, um, and that that necessitates talking about things with a tone that's a little bit different. And as I said a few minutes ago, when we were talking about academic versus non-academic writing, I think this is just what I'm better at personally. So um, take you know many. 
many people have written books about liberal politics and about the Democratic Party. Uh, Michael Kazin just wrote another very good book and his long line of research about Democratic Party. Uh, you know, with no disrespect intended to any other author, I feel like my book is, is something that your average person who's not obsessed with politics and not obsessed with liberal politics in particular is more likely to be able to enjoy and still get quite a lot from. Um, I don't feel like the tone of the book um, changes the fact that I did an extensive amount of research and I have, uh, you know, if anybody wants to compare the number of citations in their book or whatever, I think mine will come out favorably as well or would be uh, competitive in that. But that's not really the point. Yeah. The point of when people buy books is, is it interesting to them? Do they want to learn something from it? Do they want to enjoy it? You know, I mean, writing a book that people are actually going to enjoy reading was my goal here. Yes, um, as you mentioned, uh, university presses, they want a certain kind of product and everything. And that's because it's appropriate for academic mm-hmm. writing. Um, but there's also a reason why academic writing generally doesn't capture the, the public book buyer's imagination uh, very well. It's written intentionally to be accessible mostly to a narrow academics. Of, uh, academic readers. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you, uh, there is a criticism often levied at um, sort of Generation X, Generation Y and millennials um, on the left in the Democratic Party, uh, especially from older uh, Democrats that, well, you know, this this plays well with the extremely online left. This plays well with social media, but Twitter is not real life. Facebook is not real life. And, you know, Chuck Schumer and Staney Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi, the kind of centrist. Is there a divide between the, the extremely online sort of digital native generation and the generation that is actually still in control? in Washington, yeah. D.C. that is in their 70s and 80s. I think there is a difference in worldview. I think there's a difference in severity of um, how bad the current situation really is. Yeah. And I think there's a difference of opinion about what will and won't work to fix it. My point in Chaotic Neutral is whatever got us here needs to be seriously reconsidered. So whatever the strategy has been that people who've been in charge for decades at this point, like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, etc., um, not necessarily always in charge, but Chuck Schumer's been around for 30-something years in in Congress. Um, These people have um, led us here with a kind of strategy that I think has reached its logical limits. There's only so much the Democratic Party is ever going to be able to get out of chasing these votes in the center, tailoring everything toward, well, what does the most moderate suburban Pennsylvanian that Chuck Schumer's, uh, you know, can imagine is going to go for? I think that we need to reevaluate what has been tried and look at what the results of it have been. If we do that honestly and objectively, we have to question what this strategy of continually catering toward the center has gotten us. And I think enough people in positions of power, even older people like Joe Biden, are starting to get it, right? Um, Joe Biden just did something great with student debt relief, which first of all, fulfilled a campaign promise. So I don't know why there was any controversy over doing it. When you promise something, you should do it. Uh, but, But more to the point, I think he's starting to realize Look, we need to do stuff for these voters. We can't simply tell them how bad the Republican Party is. Yes, that is always going to be a component of the Democrats' message, warning people that the Republicans are way too far out there. Well, and to play devil's devil's advocate, that's it's a two-party system, right? So it's it's you know the Republicans are warning people how bad the Democrats are are when they are in power, right? right? So it's 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 kind of um, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, The the warfare is is asymmetrical if the Republicans are warning people that the Democrats are terrible, 
and the Democrats are warning are saying we need to be able to work with the Republicans. The Republicans aren't that bad. All we need are some sensible Republicans that we can work with. It's it's to, to use your metaphor, which I saw someone else steal recently. It's it's the movie Air Bud, where the dog is playing basketball and the people are on the sidelines saying dogs aren't allowed to play basketball, and they're pointing to the rule book while the dog is dunking on them. Right. You know, the the Democrats have a a sort of bifurcated message, which during elections, the message is the Republicans are frightening. They're terrible. They're autocratic. They're, they're, you know, backsliding away from democracy. But also, you know, then you get Joe Biden talking about how Mitch McConnell's his friend. And, you know, you you hear Democrats in Congress talking about how they want to work together with Republicans to do things. Look, are these people your treasured partners in governing or are they scary and autocratic? You know, you can't keep whipsawing between the two. And the Republicans' message is a little more consistent yeah. on this point. They treat the Democrats with contempt, and then they govern like it as well. You know, Mitch McConnell has absolute contempt for the Democratic Party as a governing entity. And I'm not saying that two wrongs make a right. I'm saying the Democrats need to find some consistency in the message, which is, yes, I agree with them when they say, look, this election is important because if we let the Republicans get in charge, they're going to do some scary stuff. I think that's a defensible message that you can put out there and cite things that will support it. But you have to be consistent with it and you have to pull back from that impulse to always be talking about bipartisanship and how you want to do things together. And, you know, our Republican colleagues and yada, yada. Uh, You know, Chuck Schumer had somebody uh, try to mail him a bomb a couple of years ago. And his response response to that was to go on Twitter and both sides it and say that the guys trying to send mail bombs to Democrats was the same as Mitch McConnell getting heckled at dinner, you know, and just that that mindset of we have to equalize in both sides everything and we have to uh, make sure we're always being kind to the Republican Party so that we don't alienate moderate voters or if you're going to say what they are, then treat them like they are what you said they are. Well, uh, Ed Bermilla has been our guest this morning. He's the author of the new book, Chaotic Neutral, How Democrats Lost Their Soul in the Center. It's available uh, at independent bookstores and uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble from Bold Type Books. Ed uh, joined us from North Carolina. Are you doing any book tours and will, will you be passing through uh, the Pittsburgh area anytime soon? If I do, I'll be sure to let you know. All right. Thank you very much, Ed, for taking some time to talk with us this morning. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening this week to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport. So long for now. You've been listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, copyright Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Opinions expressed on this program are not those of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. Listener support makes this program possible. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our website at tubecityonline.com and click on the donate link. You can also get a free subscription to this program and other podcasts at our website using Apple's iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you've got a question or comment, we hope you'll write to us. Our address is Tube City Community Media Incorporated, P.O. Box 94, McKeesport, PA, 15134. You can email us at TubeCityTiger at gmail.com or call us at area code 412-614-9659. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at TubeCityOnline. Online.